If you have your Bibles, if you could please open them to Genesis chapter 2. If you do not have an outline for the message, it's right out those center doors at the ministry counter. Please uh, go and get one to follow along with the message this morning. <clears throat> they couldn't decide if they should paint the room pink or blue. So they finally decided on the color lavender. So they painted the bedroom lavender and they began to put together all the, the furniture uh, piece by piece following the diagram. First they put together was the, the crib and then they put together it was the, the rocker and then the changing table and finally the dresser. You guessed it, they're going to have a baby, right? And, and the room was all ready for that baby to arrive, for that baby to come home from the hospital and place in that room. And, and I wondered just a little bit if that was what it was like when God prepared this beautiful world. He, he formed it and then he filled it and it was, he waited until that last part of that sixth day where he created man in his image. And he places him right in there in the middle of that paradise. It had to be beautiful, had to be spectacular, had to be awesome, breathtaking what God had done for us, what he created for us to place us in. We are doing a series on beginnings, and we're studying Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And this morning we're on Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles of Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 is often overlooked because Genesis chapter 1, people know, right? Because there in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it gives the details of how all that happened. Genesis chapter 3, we all know that too, right? Because that's when uh, the world was changed. That sin came into the world, the fall happened, and ever since that time, the world has been broken. But Genesis chapter 2 often gets overlooked, except those last couple of verses, they're usually quoted at weddings. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We know that verse, right? But the beginning part of the, of the chapter is often overlooked, but it's a beautiful chapter because it opens up a window for you and I to see where God and man live together in perfection. It's all perfect. It's all wonderful. And perfect paradise is where they live. Genesis chapter 1, we see a global solar system, the big picture. In Genesis chapter 2, it zooms in to a little piece of land called the Garden of Eden and find out what was happening there in the garden. What, what do you think the garden was like? Genesis chapter 2, three things we can learn about what life was like in the garden, what life was like with paradise with God. If you have your outlines, the, number one was delightful. It was delightful. Uh, life in the garden was delightful. We had a beautiful home. God created a beautiful home for mankind. In verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens. There's a word in the Hebrew language that we find in the book of Genesis called Toledoth. And it's a word that is translated, this is the account of, or these are the generations of what it means. And you find that word 10 times in the book of Genesis that becomes a structural set for this beautiful book that it wasn't just thrown together. But this book was written by Moses. But here's the problem. Moses wasn't around when all this would happen, right? As a matter of fact, Moses didn't come. He didn't arrive until centuries later. So how did Moses know about creation? How could he have known about Adam before there was an Adam? 
I mean, some people believe they would say that there were records that were kept and that were written down, and the Holy Spirit made those records available to, to Moses. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses wrote it down, right? Others would say, no, 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 no. There was no writing at the time of Moses. They didn't write back then. And if Moses didn't write, then definitely centuries before him, they couldn't have written down anything. So there could be no writings. And it's just, uh, it's interesting to see how those arguments disappear about that with the digging of an archaeologist's shovel as they start digging in there. As the archaeologists continue to dig in the tells, uh, you find in the ancient Near East today, there's these tells, these, these large mountains or hills where the archaeologists will dig. And whether, where you would find on those is a civilization would live, and as that civilization died off, another civilization would build right on top of that one. And then they would die off, and another one would build right on top of that one. Another one would die, another one would build on top of that one. Another one died, they'd build on top of that one. You get what I'm saying, right? So as you're digging down through those civilizations, archaeologists are discovering that Moses certainly could write, and writing happened way before Moses ever came to this earth. So we see those arguments disappear, so writings were, were probably handed down. We have this idea in our hearts and minds that ancient man was not very smart, Right? But uh, we've just got smarter ever since is what we think, that, that they weren't really smart back then. But, but I think the opposite is probably true, that they were very smart. And granted, we stand on the head and shoulders of those who've come before us, and we've discovered an awful lot, but based on accumulative knowledge and discoveries we've discovered. And when you talk of Adam, Adam, when he was created by God, he was created in God's image without even the effects of the fall yet. So it's no surprise, think about this, that Adam was able to stand and name all the animals that God created. Think about that. Could you do that? I couldn't do that. Adam was able to do that. So I think when it comes to Adam, Adam was super intelligent, and perhaps we've lost a little since then. What do you think? We're not as smart as they were. Like most people think, oh, they were smart. We've discovered an awful lot. We've granted that, but we're not as smart as they were. This is the encounter. This is the generations of is what the Bible says. Why is that important when you see that in Scripture? It's very important because it says that this book of Genesis was just not thrown together, but has craftsmanship. And when you go centuries, you jump ahead centuries later into the New Testament, and you look at those books, you find in Matthew, it talks about those generations of Jesus. Not talking about his descendants, but talking about his ancestors. Going back and showing the time, it is very important to show that Jesus came through the line of David. Very important to show that. And showing the genealogies of Jesus, tracing their way through Mary and Joseph. That lines up beautifully with the book of Genesis. You go through Matthew and look, and it goes all the way back to Genesis, to Adam, you find out, that it all makes sense. That it all fits together. And that's why it's so important that we look at that. So let's read verse 5 and 6. And it says, No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Of those verses, you find a couple things there. You find, first of all, two kinds of vegetation that are mentioned there. First, you find the shrub and the plant, right? Probably referring to two types of vegetation. One is edible, and one's not edible. That's probably what that means. One's edible, one's not edible. Then they use three terms to, to describe the geography here. The first one is earth, which can also be translated land. It's just a general term. The earth, the face of the earth, just a general term, means land. Uh, the next word is the word field, followed by the word ground. It, it, it kind of shows a distinction. 
field is probably that which is untilled. It's probably the, the uh, wild animals and, and kind of rough terrain and so forth, uh, as opposed to the word ground. Ground is probably referred to the tillable ground that they're talking about, the land that man was supposed to plant seed and grow and develop. It's talking about that land. So everything's ready now. Everything is ready for the harvest to take place. The Bible says, except two things, you catch them? Two things aren't ready yet. One, there's no man to work the ground. And second, there's need of irrigation. No rain had come. And God was about to take care of all that, right? He was going to take care of all. There was this beautiful land that was ready, ready for mankind to enjoy is what we see. We've lost a little bit of sense of that uh, connection of man to the land today, haven't we? What do you do when you run out of food? Do you go out to your garden? I mean, some of you have gardens, right? But do you live off your garden where you say, boy, I, I get all my food from our garden? But my wife, when we run out of food, she goes to the grocery store and she buys groceries, right? So we're, we're further moved away from the land, all of us. And we find out there's a lot of people in between the harvest of the crop until it reaches our table, right? But it always wasn't that way. One of the programs that Sheila and I like to watch, which is my wife, we like to watch, is the land, that the, the one that shows the people living in Alaska. I don't know if you see that. And they live off the land of Alaska. And it shows the connection with them and the people with the land is what you see. And they're living off the land. They're getting their crops and their food and the animals are all there for the harvesting. There for them to take, use whatever they have to use. So you find the land and the connection of man to the land goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning. You see that connection there. So one author says, the land is our cradle, it's our home, it's our grave. Dust to dust, dust to dust, and ashes to ashes we go. Let's look at verse 7. There's kind of a twist there that gives us in verse 7. It says that God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Man was different from all of God's creation. I don't want you to notice that. All of God's creation thus far was made out of nothing out of nothing. But man was made from the dust of the ground. It was made out of something already, right? Something there. The picture you often have in the Bible, we have God is involved in the creation of mankind by making man out of the dust of the ground. The book of Jeremiah states it very simply, kind of develops a metaphor there that lets you and I to see a man of a man sitting at a potter's wheel. And a man is sitting in a potter's wheel, and the potter's wheel has a flat spot on top of it. And the, the potter he will take a piece of clay and he put it on that potter's wheel and he controls how fast that wheel will turn by his foot, how fast it would turn. And the potter will begin to shape and form that piece of clay with his hands and adding water to it. His compression of his hands, forming it and shaping it. And as he feels any, any kind of stones or sticks or any kind of dirt, he takes it out, but he's forming it and he's compressing it. The Bible tells us that God is the potter and we are the clay. God is forming us and shaping us. In Psalm 90, Moses wrote that psalm, and he says this, we are on the potter's wheels. And God determines our beginning day and our ending day. Psalm 31 says the same thing, that our time is in God's hands. And so our view of God tells us more about us than it does about God. Think about that. How do you view God? Be honest. How do you really view him? Do you view God as a God who's cold and impersonal, that's far off and that he's distant, that he doesn't care and he's not involved. He's way out there. And God doesn't care what's going on in my life. He could care less what's happening around me. Look at the world. God doesn't care. Is that how you view God? Well, verse 7, if you really look at it and analyze it, it just blows that view away. Because what it's saying is that God is 
highly involved in his creation, that God highly cares about his creation, that he forms it, that he, that he, that he, the Bible says he personally breathes life into it. The breath of, breath, of, breath of God into man that brings life. That man is born and made in the image of God. That God is highly involved in our life, and he cares about everything that's going on in the face of this earth. That's why he was so involved the day of creation, so involved when man came, and he made us in his image. And he highly cares what's going on in your life, and he wants to be involved in your life. Let's read verse 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk about both of those trees, but not today, okay? But I want you to notice that God made a garden that was both functional and beautiful. It was both functional and beautiful. It was good for food, but it was also was pleasing to the eyes, what you see there. In other words, God's creation had a way to join functionality and aesthetic beauty together. We're not very good at doing that in our culture today, are we? We're not very good at that. We either are functional or we're aesthetic. If you go out and you buy this beautiful vase at a store or someplace or order this beautiful vase and you bring it home and it costs you a lot of money, you don't set that vase on a table, do you? You usually put it in a cabinet behind glass doors, and you put a light on and say, look at it. You tell your grandchildren, your children, you can look at it, but don't touch it. Nobody can touch that vase, right? A functional part, a functional vase is what we do. We go out and buy a much cheaper vase. We put the, put the flowers on it, put it in the center of the table, don't we? We don't, meet, we don't mesh the two. We don't meld the two together, right? We either have beauties over here. Nobody touch it. It's off. Nobody put their hands on it. And here's function. If it breaks, I'm all right with that. That's not the way it always has been. Ancient Middle Eastern cultures would mix those two. And so the piece of pottery on the wheel that was shaped and thrown into the oven was meant to be perfect and meant to be useful, melding the beauty and functionality all together. You ever watch that program, Fixer Upper? How many have ever watched that? Chip and Joanna Gaines. Some of you have watched that. The thesis of the program is they would find a couple or, or, or a single person that is looking for a house, right? And then they showed them three houses, and, and then the, the person has to pick which house they want, and they would fix that house up, right? Chip is the functional guy. He's the construction contractor. Uh, Joanna has an eye for design. She designs it, and he, he builds it, right? That's what happens. And this all happens within an hour, right? Because I watch it. It's all in an hour. It all happens. You watch a show. It's done in an hour. But at the end of the show, as you're watching it, they show, they show it to the family. The viewers and the family look at this, and it's breathtaking what they've done, right? Right? You look at it because it's functional, and it's beautiful and breathtaking. They were able to meld both of those together, functional and beauty. That's the way the garden was. I want you to get your picture of the garden. That God designed it that it would be absolutely beautiful, breathtaking. That it bringing functionality and aesthetic beauty together for us to enjoy. That's the way he made it. Absolutely breathtaking, absolutely beautiful, but it was very functional. Let's read verses Genesis 2, verse 10 through 14. We get a little bit more detail of what was going on. It says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into two, into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, or the Pishon, determines who you talk to. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, aromatic resin, and onks are also there. 
The name on the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The land of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. God made a beautiful place, right? And what was it like for God and man to live together in, in the garden? It was delightful. It was now, and it is today. It's beautiful. It's not as good as it was, but it's not as good as it will be, right? That Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he's crucified, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What do you think that place is going to look like? It's going to be absolutely amazing. It's going to be absolutely breathtaking. We are going to be awe of what God has made. See, what we see now is a result of God's work in a broken world. We didn't see what it was. We didn't see what it was. It's absolutely breathtaking. We look now and the beauty of our creation is wonderful and amazing, but we didn't see what it was. Can you imagine what it will be like that man and God live together? That the environment's different, just man and God walking together. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Can you imagine living there like Adam and Eve had that for that short time where God walked with them in the cool of the evening? Can you imagine one day we're going to live with God? He's going to live with us. Can you imagine what that would be like? Let me show you a second thing that we could learn about, what it was like for man and God to live together. What was it like in paradise with God? It was rewarding. It was rewarding because we had a compelling vocation, the Bible tells us. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The word put there, when you look at the word and how it's used in the rest of the book of Genesis, it means rest. It means safety. It means there for a purpose, place for a purpose. Almost as worship is what it's talking about. Almost worship. God took man and he strategically placed him right there in the middle of the garden as a place of safety, as a place of rest, as a place of worship, as a place of work is what he did. So many people think today work is this terrible curse that God has given to us that is so horrible. But we need to look at the first three verses of chapter 2. And it says three times, God worked, God worked, and God worked. And that's before the fall, that God is doing all this. So work is not a curse. It's not a curse. Work is raised by God to a very high level, to a very high value is what God has done, his work. And the work in this country has high value in part because this country was founded from the principles of the Bible, right? Was founded in that. However, we've made work in all kinds of things. If you look at work as a continuum and you have the extreme ends on each one of these continuums, you have an extreme end on that one, an extreme end on this one. On one of the extreme ends, you will find that some people made work to be the reason for their life made them a reason for their living. They, they give all their work, their energy. Work gets all their creativity, gets all of their time. So when they get home from work, they have no, no energy. They're exhausted. They have no time for creativity. They have no, nothing left for other priorities in their lives. And they either love the work for what work will give them as accumulations and, and uh, a status and climbing the ladder and all that kind of things and, and all that fulfillment, or they love work what it will give them in terms of a paycheck in terms of money, what they can do with that money. But work is totally out of proportion and it, with their work, it, it is, in terms of priority. The other continuum, what you have, is the other continuum that people have, is that work is just a drudgery. I hate it. I hate work. I can't stand to go to work. According to surveys, many Americans find themselves on that end of the continuum where they said, I hate work and I see no reason for it. 
I can't stand Monday mornings, and I can't wait for Friday afternoons. And maybe, you, maybe you feel like that. You have that in your own mind. You think that, if that's resonating with you. But rather than place ourselves in, in between that continuum with two extremes, that maybe we look at the biblical approach that God has given us, how we are to look at work, where God says, I placed you here to work, and he's given two words. I placed you here to work, and he says, to work it and take care of it. Now, they were the same words that God used to describe the works uh, of the Levitical priest did to work and take care of it. Theirs was in terms and case of the law and the teaching of the law. But what God is saying, he says, I made this for you to be fulfilling, work to be fulfilling, and to be a worship experience. Think about that. Think about that. What if we approach work like that? That it be fulfilling and a worship experience. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's a worship experience. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what he had it for Adam. That's what it's always supposed to be. For many people they, on this end of the continuum where they hate work, they can't stand it, they think if only I had a different job, if only I had a different job, then things would be different. That's true in some cases. I acknowledge that. In some cases that's true. But sometimes, I think in other cases, it's our own attitude that needs to be adjusted, right? We need to adjust our attitude. If we look at work where we go when we just punch a clock and we just put our time in so we can leave there to really start really living our time. And it's just that time that's in between where we can really start living. If we looked at work as a time where assignment from God, we looked at those hours as a time of worshiping Him. That's what He wants us to do. Isn't that what Paul told the Colossians as well as the, well as the Philippians? He says, as you do your work, do this unto the Lord. That's how we're supposed to work. We're doing this unto the Lord. So that boss that has given you a hard time at work, that boss that you do not like, is not really your boss. God is your boss, right? You have one higher than your boss at work. And that boss that you have to report to at work that you really don't like and really hard on you, you ultimately have a boss that's higher than him, right? That we're accountable to, that we report to. That's the one that matters, right? That boss. If we approach work like that, where we go to work in that setting and say, God, I'm here today Use me for whatever you would have me do today, however you want to use me. And if you don't work, if you stay at home, you can say the same thing for your life. God, whatever you want me to do today, let me do that. Let me accomplish your will. For some people, it's a lot easier because you're making a huge contribution to society. And anytime I think about that, I think of uh, Dr. Ben Carson in 1987, where he did this very heroic surgery where there were two German babies that were conjoined at the brain. And he did that marathon 16-hour surgery where he's able to separate them so they both could live independently. Not all of us have work like that, do we? Not all of us say, boy, I, I accomplished those kind of things every day. And he had all kinds of surgeries like that. When you look at him as a surgeon, he was a brilliant surgeon. Uh, some of you are teachers and you teach children how to read, and that's great. And some of you are nurses or whatever, and you're, you're helping people. But maybe you say, I don't fit in any of those categories. All I do is put bar, uh, box parts for cars and trucks. And you say, that's all I do. And is it possible uh, of boxing parts for cars and trucks, could that be a worship opportunity? Could that be a ministry opportunity as we interrelate with people, as we share the gospel through our lives, as our attitude for Christ comes through our work? Is it possible to do that? Yes, no. Yes, it is, no matter what you're doing. No matter what you're doing at your job, no matter what it is, it is possible to share Jesus Christ through your lives, through, through your lives, that people see Jesus in you, and your attitude comes through your work, that you love Christ, and I'm doing it, not for my boss, because we don't really get along, but I'm doing it for you, Jesus. 
I'm going to give the best I can give every day. I'm going to come with a heart that's a sweet heart, ready to share the love of Jesus wherever I go. No matter what they do to me, just as Jesus, no matter what they did to him, he responds, he's loving, he cares. And that's the way we were supposed to do, right? We're supposed to love and we're supposed to live that way. Have that attitude of Christ in our place at work, whatever we do. What was it like, life like in the paradise with God? Number three, rules. We were ruled. We had an inescapable command is what we find out here in verse 16 and 17. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God was to rule over us. In other words, we were never meant to be autonomous. We were never meant to be on our own and doing our own thing. He placed us here. He placed us in his image. He, he says, you are to represent me. Remember, you are my Salem. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. You're my representative here on this earth. But you are to obey me. We might be his representative. We're made in his image. But he says, you are to obey me. And I think there's three ways that we can look at this command, three things about this command we need to look at to understand. First, we need to look at this and realize that God was extremely, extremely generous. Think about this. If it was me in that garden, and I created that garden, I'd say, hey, you guys just eat, you know, there's only two of you. You just eat from these few trees over here. You know, leave the rest of the garden. But that's not what God did, did he? God made this beautiful, wonderful, amazing garden. He says, this is for you to enjoy all of it. It's all yours to enjoy. But just don't eat from that one tree. Do not eat from that one. You think that was so bad? God was really generous. Uh, God doesn't give us this reason for that right here, and right, right away in the passage for that. Why not eat from that tree? Let me ask you a question. Are you one of those people who say, I'm not going to do it unless I have a reason? I'm not going to follow the rule unless they give me the reason. And that, that works, except that it's God who's giving you the telling you to do it, right? We don't deserve the why from God. We're just to obey him. When God says to do something, we're not to say, God, but why? Okay, God, I'll do it. Maybe I'll find out the why later, but God tells me to do something. I'm just to obey him because God knows best, right? Amen? He knows best. And so uh, the, second, don't get caught up in the kind of tree so many people want to get caught up in the verse and try to identify the tree. It doesn't matter if it's an apple tree, a pear tree, a peach tree. It doesn't matter. And if you're so focused on the tree, you're missing the point of the passage. It wasn't about the kind of tree. It was God simply says, don't eat from that tree. doesn't matter what kind of tree it was. doesn't matter. Don't eat from that tree. I don't want you to eat from that tree. So it doesn't matter the kind of tree. Just don't eat from that tree, the one that God pointed out. The third thing is if you do eat of the tree, he told them, you will surely die. Not you might not die. Might not die. You will surely die. You're going to die. That's what he said. You eat from that, you will die. And that death was two ways. It was a spiritual death. They were going to die spiritually. Uh, their alignment and their connectivity to God was broken. Now they were separated from God, and there was a distance between them and God. And there's no way they could approach it. It was like a chasm. There's no way they could approach God. He's perfect and holy and just, and they were not. They were sinners. So they could not approach God. So it was this distance between God they cannot approach him. So spiritually, they were dead. Second, physical death. Physically, they began to die. They weren't supposed to die, but now they physically began to die. Mankind would now have a lifespan, and then they would die from that moment on. Everything changed. Everything changed. Now they were going to die. Uh, how do you wrap all this together? I want to give you a couple things as we wrap this up before we take communion. 
first, let's enjoy God's beauty that is given to us. It's beautiful then, and it's still beautiful now, amen, that God gives us the sunsets and sunrises every morning and every night to look at God's beautiful masterpiece. It's like God is artistic, and he just draws it in the sky and says, look at this one. Tomorrow's going to be a different one, and the next day is a different one. Everyone's different. Every sunrise and sunset is different, and it's beautiful. It's amazing every night. You ever go out there and look at those? They're amazing. It's, 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 it's going to be fantastic that day when we get to heaven, but let's not look at heaven so much that we forget the beauty of today, the beauty of what God has created right here in front of us. Let's enjoy it. Second, let's step up and lead. We're all called, called to lead, men and women, but I'm probably talking more to the guys today about being leaders. You're called to be leaders. God has placed us in a world to lead. Men lead well. Lead well. Uh, being obedient to God's commands without asking questions, questioning him all the time and say, God, I need 15 reasons why before I act, before I respond. Just obey God. When God says something, obey him. When it says it in the word, don't say I need reasons why, just obey him. Leadership is not authoritarianism. It's not mean. We see that a lot in our culture today where women are abused. That's not biblical leadership. Biblical leadership is loving. Biblical leadership is serving. So men, let's do that. Let's love and let's serve well. That's what God has called us in. We can all do that, right? Men and women, let's love and let's serve well. As men and family leaders, maybe you're saying that we need to have nights together where we eat a meal together, eat dinner together. And that's good. Maybe you're saying we need to have nights together where where we're going to read the scriptures together. That's good. We're going to have nights together where we're going to pray together. That's all good. But men, sometimes you have to lead. And if you're in your household and you've never been baptized, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you've never been baptized, you need to lead your family and say, we need to take that next step with Jesus and be baptized. And maybe it's you that needs to take, make that decision and do that and lead your family. Or if you want your children and your grandchildren to say that I want them to see that it's important to grow in their faith and, and to learn God's Word, they need to see you, dads and grandpas, and in Bible studies and small groups. So I'd encourage you to sign up and be a part of a small group and Bible study so your children and your grandchildren can see that it's important to continue to grow, that we just don't come to Jesus and accept Him by faith, but we continue to grow. And how are they going to do it unless they see you do it, Dad and Grandpa and Grandma and Mom? It's important for all of us to be grown. So we need to be in small groups and Bible studies get involved. So I encourage you to sign up and be a part of those, okay? Man, I, I challenge you to follow the pattern that God has given us to be biblical leaders. Ladies, I challenge you to be biblical leaders that God has called you to. There will all to be biblical leaders, right? That we rise up and be the people that God has called us. Not what our culture is telling us, but what God has called us to. Three, let's celebrate God's generosity. God was generous in the garden. He said, you've got the whole garden. Enjoy it. Eat of it. Except that one tree. That was it, just one tree. God's generosity didn't end in Genesis chapter 2. It only got better. It only got better. The pinnacle of God's generosity to us, for, for us, that one day, in the fullness of time, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live with us, to show us what holiness is, to love us. But the reason, the real purpose of him coming was to generously give his life for us. That's why he came to die on the cross for our sins. He became poor that we might become rich, rich spiritually. That's why he came. And if you don't know Jesus yet, if you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can't accept his generosity until you received his gift. 
You can't say, I'm, I'm enjoying God's generosity. No, you, you can't say that unless you accept the gift he's offering to you. And that gift that he's offering you is forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God forever through Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross for your sins and paid for your sins completely so now that you and I can approach a holy, just, righteous God. Because before this, you and I were separated from God, distant from God. There's no way we can approach him. But God has made that all right through Jesus by sending Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross for your sins. Your sins are paid completely by Jesus. Now we can approach God, but we have to come to God through his way, the way that he has provided. And the only way, the only way that he has provided is through his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins and paid the complete payment for all your sins so you can have a relationship with God and have your sins forgiven through Jesus. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, your Savior, please put your faith and trust in him today by simply saying, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. And today, I trust him as my Savior. The Bible said it's by grace, through faith that we're saved, by God's grace, his generosity that he's given to us. Accept his free gift that he's offering to you. Put your faith and trust in Jesus.